And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, the game 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles' exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Hopefully you've been enjoying the wrestling over the last week or so. And boy, oh boy, do we have a lot to talk about. And I think we all got to kind of take a step back and get to what's taught what's been the biggest talking point over the last few days. And that is without a doubt the fact that we have uh, the big news from Friday. So we're going to go ahead and recap that and kind of give you the timeline of events in case you were living under a rock or you don't know necessarily the whole story. So it all started with Friday morning. I believe the news dropped around 9, 10 o'clock in the morning. And that was from WWE's corporate website saying that effective immediately, Paul Levesque, better known as Triple H, is returning to his role as the EVP of talent relations after stepping away due to his health issues and all the stuff that he was dealing with late 2021, early 2022. And in, there's just a simple press release that said that, and then a quote from Levesque saying he looks forward to returning to his prior position as head of talent relations. He's healthy, fired up, and ready to take charge. Now, this pretty much means Johnny Ace is finally gone from the WWE. And it looks like he is very much out of the picture, obviously, with everything that was going on with the allegations concerning him and Mr. McMahon, who we'll get to in a moment. That felt like the writing was on the wall for a while because he'd already been taken on a quote-unquote leave. And we all know usually when you're put on administrative leave, that means the next step is your ass is getting fired. And that felt like, okay, you know, typical stuff and felt like inevitable, if we're being honest. We were just waiting to see if it was actually going to happen. So we have that. Then we get into around 3.30 or so, basically right after the, and again, it's typical media words where you do a Friday news dump. A press release, something like this, is always going to be dropped on a Friday. You know that stuff's coming. But the fact they did this right after the stock market closed on a Friday, that was impressive. That took some real huevos because this went down probably around 3.30, 3.40 when the news was put out from Twitter. Of all places, I don't think I ever would have expected Vince McMahon, number one, to know how to use Twitter. And number two, he actually tweeted out his retirement speech saying, quote, at the age of 77, time for me to retire. Thank you, WWE Universe. Then, now, forever. Together, hashtag WWE, hashtag thankful. And I'll have one of the first responses that pops up when I pull up the tweet again is Titus O'Neil, thank you for everything. And we'll get to Titus O'Neil in a moment because that was probably one of the more interesting parts of Raw on Monday. But the news then was put out in a press release. And the full quote from Vince McMahon when he released the following statement he says he approaches as he approaches 77 years old, he feels it's time to retire as chairman and CEO of WWE. Throughout the years, it's been a privilege to help WWE bring you joy, inspire you, thrill you, surprise you, and always entertain you. I would like to thank my family for mightily contributing to our success, and I would also like to thank all our past and present superstars and employees for their dedication and passion for our brand. Most importantly, I would like to thank our fans for allowing us into your homes every week and being your choice of entertainment. I hold the deepest appreciation and admiration for our generations of fans all over the world who have liked, currently like, and sometimes even love our form of sports entertainment. 
Our global audience can take comfort in knowing WWE will continue to entertain you with the same fervor, dedication, and passion. As always, I am extremely confident in the continued success of WWE and leave our company in the capable hands of an extraordinary group of superstars, employees, and executives. In particular, saying that he went co-CEO here. He basically went with the Jim Dwight situation where it's the assistant manager type stuff. Co-CEO here. Stephanie McMahon and Nick Khan are your co-CEOs. But Vince is, once again, still the majority shareholder. We talked about that a number of weeks ago when this whole thing started. So he will continue to support WWE in any way he can. My personal thanks to our community and business partners, shareholders, and board of directors for their guidance and support over the years. And then ends it with the WWE tagline, then, now, forever, together. And all that's just incredibly interesting to get that perspective and hear kind of Vince retire this way. Now, again, it was all inevitable for this to happen. I'm just more surprised at when it happened. It was the timing of which. Because you have the WWE just say, hey, you know, you have all these controversies stacking up. It might be time for you to go ahead and exit stage left. And that's exactly what he's doing. That was more impressive because, you know, it felt like for the longest time, Vince McMahon was pretty much going to die in Gorilla, but he's no longer going to be in Gorilla, according to a lot of reports from verified insiders. I saw somebody on Reddit actually bring that up. And that also brought up something else that kind of got a lot of steam right before SmackDown, like around 4.30ish, right before I actually left work on Friday. The news started to kind of leak out that there was a all-hands-on-deck staff meeting inside the arena in Boston. And, of course, the big news is told to all these guys. Vince McMahon announces he's no longer going to be part of Gorilla. There was a big letter, and he said he was out. Then Brock Lesnar decides to say, and this is coming from Brian Alvarez, quote, if he's gone, then I'm gone, or something to that nature. Saying that was enough for everybody to just kind of run with it. Now, there's a little bit of differentiation with this story from this point forward. Some people say that he never left, but I think the insistence is that he left kind of cooled off. Either that or WWE said, hey, you've still got to do this match. We need to give you, we're going to give you a crap load of money to do this match and more importantly, make this appearance at the end of SmackDown because he was pretty much written out of the show entirely. They had to pretty much rewrite the show, which feels like a classic WWE move, but for a lot of different reasons than what we've seen in the past. So you have that happen. WWE has to kind of do a 180 and fix the entire show because one, you have the announcement. Number two, you have... Brock Lesnar, your one half of your SummerSlam main event, walk out of the company. Now, how long that could last? If how long can Brock be pacified? Is anybody's guess? But that was the big kind of oversight thing when it comes to that's a sweeping, you know, look and rundown of what's going on with WWE from the corporate standpoint. Now let's get to how things could look and how things, I think, hopefully they'll look 
First things first, with Triple H as head of talent relations, I don't think that changes anything all that much. Because while he is the head of talent relations, he's still going to be answering to Nick Khan and Stephanie McMahon and probably going to be going through those same kind of policies that WWE has been doing for the better part of, you know, the last year, year and a half since the pandemic, pretty much. But I think the last year, it's been much more accelerated where you see guys get released quarterly right around the time the quarterly reports do come out, all that stuff. That's kind of where we're wondering how this whole thing is going to go. But I think when it comes to Triple H, I don't think he's going to play as many as big of a role as some think. And that's where this whole debate is, is what happens now that you have Vince gone, Stephanie and Triple H are essentially running the company. Nick Khan's there. But I wonder how much of a role he's going to have as being the co-CEO. Because we talked about it a while back that if it was just him, I wouldn't be surprised if six months from right now they sell to either NBC Universal or Disney. You know Disney would love to have that. I understand a lot of people were like, oh no, they wouldn't want that. My BS, they wouldn't want that. That's hundreds of thousands of hours of tape that you can pretty much keep under the Disney name and under the Disney platform on ESPN Plus. Are you kidding me? If you're Disney or NBC Universal, even, you are wanting to lock down that for everything it's worth. And I think when it comes to Disney, they would say, all right, we're going to go ahead and shut down shop after the deal with Fox is up for the SmackDown stuff. They're going to go ahead and shut it down and they're going to go ahead and just take the tape library and move on. NBC Universal, a little bit of a different situation. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if they would probably do more of the same thing because at the end of the day, they are a content provider, and more importantly, they are making hand over fist money with Peacock right now with all the live events and the premium live events they'll have. Who's to say that WWE under NBC Universal doesn't go a monthly route where they change the way the product is done, where you have only premium live events, a lot like the UFC? Is that going to happen? It feels very unlikely because you're kind of contractually obligated to finish out these deals for Monday Night Raw, NXT, SmackDown, all that stuff on the live TV side. But I wouldn't be surprised if if it was just Nick Khan running things, they would sell to a different person altogether. But of course, Vince will have the final say in that as well, but I'm sure it's being talked about. Now when it comes to the day-to-day creative, I wouldn't be surprised if Stephanie is the head of it. But I think at the same time, you've got to go look and find somebody that's going to be really good at coming up with great storylines and you don't have to filter him. I think the guy that's in there, it's without a doubt, Paul Heyman. I'd say if it were me and I was Stephanie McMahon and Nick Khan. And I know that Stephanie's going to be focused more on the brand. I'd say why not let two former guys that have run promotions. I'm not talking just promotions here. I'm talking about wrestling promotions and successful ones at that. Yes, TNA wasn't necessarily a huge success in certain metrics, but they were a sustainable company for a good while. Hell, they're still around 20 years later in a different name. 
with that in mind, I think Jeff Jarrett and Paul Heyman are your two guys that could easily run creative on the main roster. Give them some time, give them some time to develop characters, and more importantly, give them time to develop long-term storylines. I think WWE can get a whole lot better because that's kind of where WWE is now. Vince McMahon always was a guy that was rewriting stories where you weren't able to tell a cohesive long-term angle over the course of several months or even a year. You know, go, go look at some stuff TNA was doing back in like the 2010s. You had angles that lasted well over a year before you got the big payoff. I understand that people's attention spans aren't necessarily all there. And I the fact that I think WWE likes to just do the isolated every four weeks. It's a new story. It's a new, it's new and fresh. I think there's a way to do that, but also have a bigger overarching story that can be told over the course of a year. Like we've seen on AEW even with Hangman Adam Page and Kenny Omega. That story was ready built and ready made. And it was told pretty from the beginning. And we got to see that arc kind of go all the way through. Yes, it was like a Dragon Ball Z arc where it took forever to get to the end of the road. But when you got to the end of the road and Hangman Adam Page won the title, it felt like an amazing moment. WWE is all focused on moments, not necessarily building up these moments as being spectacular. It's about just giving people instant gratification. Maybe it's time to change that up and get people invested in the build rather than, oh, hey, let's just go ahead and blow our wad once a month. Let's wait and give people a slow burn. Hell, you could even say, to a certain extent, that was Bianca Belair's story leading into this year's WrestleMania, but it's a little bit different. It didn't feel like that was the direction they were going to go originally, but that's just my personal opinion. So I'd say, in terms of your hierarchy, everything's set up the way it needs to be. Stephanie McMahon and Nick Khan, because I think Stephanie's going to overrule Nick in a lot of different senses. Then you have Triple H handling talent relations. What that means is really anybody's guess at this point. But it's a huge step in the right direction. Then you've got to look at creative. I think, again, Heyman, Jarrett are your two guys that you are going to absolutely have to look at as being the answers to your problems and the answers to your prayers in some cases. So that's kind of where I think WWE stands right now. Does it change things, though, is the million-dollar question. I don't know. And I hate to go that direction. I hate to sound like somebody that's kind of riding the fence here. But I don't know if it's going to change that much immediately. Because, again, Vince McMahon will still have majority shareholder rights. But when it comes to the overall product, I think if you give it some time in the next six months we could see a lot of big changes coming in the not-too-distant future. But that's about all I got for that in this podcast. Again, Vince McMahon retires, kind of went through what happened with WWE and where they stand in the here and now. I also want to get to one more thing before we kind of move on because we're going to get to more about AEW because they had a very interesting, interesting week. And we'll start with Tony Khan with his tweet before AEW Rampage, which I absolutely had to kind of laugh at. 
to say the very least. Because he decided to go ahead and say, not long after the announcement, at 327, not long after the announcement of Vince McMahon retiring. In fact, when I saw that the first time, I didn't believe it. I thought it was a photoshopped tweet. Because I just saw the screenshot, didn't see the actual tweet. When I saw that, I was like, holy crap, this actually happens. But Tony Khan put, thanks to you wrestling fans and your great support of AEW, I'm grateful to now be the longest tenured CEO in pro wrestling. Seen it Friday night for Rampage. I'm like, what the hell? Why did he even do that? And he didn't necessarily talk about all that stuff in, in the post Death Before Dishonor scrum, which was interesting to say the least. But it's always funny to kind of watch how, you know, he promotes AEW leading into an episode of Rampage. How he promotes Rampage. He doesn't necessarily do this as much on Dynamite because it's never, it's always the same old, same old for that company, for that show, because it's always leading into, you know, Big Bang Theory. But it's always wild to hear him kind of break down and say, hey, you know, he's watching The Dark Knight. And he, he did this. And it's always funny to me how he does that. So it's right before rampage starts he says that harvey dent is dead the joker took the best of us and tore him down now batman's taking the rap to cover harvey's legacy which means it's now time for friday night rampage on tnt always interesting to see that those kind of tweets but we'll get to dynamite in a few but i want to get to the thing that i was most looking forward to this week and that was death before dishonor Needless to say, it lived up to the hype and then some. What was interesting was I didn't see much of Zero Hour. I watched the Coca Banner match, and then I was going to watch the tag team matches, but then I kind of just walked out of the room and forgot about it. And I wound up getting dinner, so you know, didn't necessarily pay attention to it till the main card at this point. So I didn't write anything, but write anything about Zero Hour. So we get to the opening match of the night and that is Claudio Castagnoli versus Jonathan Gresham and this is actually the first match of the card and apparently they, they had Ian Recaboni and Priest Coleman mentioned the fact that this was determined by a blind coin toss between that and the FTR Briscoes match which honestly they can kayfabe that all they want FTR Briscoes 2 should have always been the main event because that was the big selling point but still surprised, to say the least. Claudio tries for the European uppercut straight away. Nothing doing. Good test of strength here to start the contest. And the two exchange holds. And Claudio hit the big swing on Gresham. And he kept that thing rolling for about 20 rotations, it felt like. Just a really good technical match. Gresham targeted the leg for about half the contest. And kept Claudio from hitting the UFO. There was a great combo towards the end of the match with Claudio hitting the Swiss death, excuse me, right into a Ricola bomb attempt that is countered into roll up for two. Claudio starts hitting the vintage Blackpool Combat Club 12 6 elbows and connects with the Ricola bomb, and we have a new ROH world champion. This was a really good opener that felt way shorter than it should have been, but based off of some of the stuff we've been hearing, it makes sense why it was the way it was. But I'm still giving it an overall four links of boot and a very good opening match. I brought the fact that there was a lot of changes. I'm going to go ahead and talk about that now because 
news came out before I taped. Thank goodness I didn't tape earlier in the day like I thought I was going to originally because there was news that was coming out about that match. More importantly, the fact that you have you know, Jonathan Gresham walking out and wanting his release from his AEW and ROH contract. And I'm going to go ahead and just read off what Fightful Select had. And by the way, shout out to them. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to them when it comes to their Fightful Select. It's only $5 a month. And I tell you, if you love the scoops and love the dirt sheets, this is one of the best ones out there because it feels like he gets all this big information pretty consistently. And he gets it right. Apparently, Gresham met with Tony Khan and about four others at 4 o'clock Eastern time, basically 3 o'clock Central, before the pay-per-view, and was admittedly heated and not happy with the direction of the booking in his character. It was agreed upon that the context of the conversation would remain private, but apparently he was cursing out Tony Khan, and Gresham had spoken to QT Marshall multiple times over the past week, briefly, which we've heard went well. It was also noted that you know Sanjay Dutt was a point of contact, and the frustration on his part seemed to be creative, which ultimately ends with Tony Khan, and not being able to be given answers as a result. And he was told that these decisions had to be ran through Tony, who wasn't able to meet until a few hours before the show. And when it comes to just talent relations, some of the names that come up are the coaches like Christopher Daniels, QT Marshall, and Pat Buck. But apparently Sanjay Dudd does have a decent role in that as well, and Khan has communication with them at least 10 times a day. And it was believed that the AEW side of things but was believed to came in the meeting with his mind made up that he was going to ask for his release. And they not seemed heated like that before. They not seen him heated up like that before. Excuse me. And he talked about aggression, being passionate about his beliefs in ROH, the brand, and himself. And it keeps going to where, essentially, he wanted, he's going to be walking away from wrestling for a while. Which, again, that's, his prerogative. But we start to hear all that stuff, and you combine that with the MGF storyline or the work shoot stuff that we haven't necessarily talked that much about since the incident with him calling Tony Khan a bleeping mark on live television. But I want to get into... uh, I'll say this much. Tony Khan and I, to a certain extent, we're a lot alike. Not because we're marks. No, I mean, we're not, I'm not using mark in a derogatory term in any way, shape, or form. But I am saying this in a sense of how he handles things. I have a tendency to be that same guy that Tony Khan likes to be. Thinks that he can do everything. He can handle it all. But I think this, like this moment needs to be that wake-up call because sooner or later it's going to be like a house of cards is going to fall down on him and AEW. And I think right here, right now, if there were a documentary about the rise and fall of AEW, this could be one of those contributing factors is that Tony Khan isn't truly, truly delegating the responsibilities. I could be completely off base here. That's just the way it seems to me. He needs to delegate. I think guys, he has those people already in place as being talent relations, but I feel like he's got to have somebody that knows how to do that day who has experience in that. And it's tough to find that person, but I think 
you need to have that person be the point of contact rather than Tony Khan be the be all end all in this. Because after all, it's called talent relations. If Tony Khan's got the book and he's talent relations, it's a little bit of a mess. You have Sanjay, you have Christopher Daniels, and those guys have experience. I mean, Sanjay's been doing that for a while, not just in WWE, but also in Impact. He's got that reputation. He has the probably has a good bit of respect from that locker room because of what he's been able to do over the years in the Indies and also the fact that he is just overall a really good guy. I interviewed him a number of years ago in a podcast that once existed a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away on the game. But enough about that. I want to get to the rest of the actual show here. Oh, one more thing, because I forgot to mention this, is that Tully Blanchard, who was apparently, he's was part of the Tully Blanchard Enterprises, that's already done. And this comes from the, again, Fightful Select brought this up, saying that Tully Blanchard won't be part of AW or Ring of Honor going forward. He was supposed to be there, but didn't appear with the stable and was later revealed in storyline that Prince Nana had acquired the group, basically making this the new embassy. Fightful Select learned that Blanchard was not at the show. There were mixed messages as to whether or not Blanchard outright missed his travel or there was confusion surrounding it. But according to their sources, Blanchard's prison ministry group was cited as the reason he wasn't there. And talent and staff that were inquired about this, we're told Blanchard is effectively gone for the company and isn't figured in any plans moving forward. So yeah, that's about it for one Tully Blanchard, who would have been at ringside for Gresham in the opening match, but then it was Prince Nana. So that's the thing. So let's get to the ROH World Six-Man Tag Team Championship match with Dalton Castle and the boys Versus the Righteous. First of all, it's great to see the World Six-Man titles back in Ring of Honor. Because it felt like that was going to be one that might fall to the wayside. More importantly, I think now we need to get the new Ring of Honor logo on those things ASAP as possible. I'm sure Leather by Dan or whoever makes their belts is working hard on those. But this was a match where pretty much you had Dalton and the boys. More importantly, the boys... Like they were fighting for underneath the whole time. They were de- getting demolished. There was a brutal-looking knee by Vincent that just looked like damn near a KO punch there. Dalton Castle got a big hot tag, cleaned house for his team. Then he started throwing the boys out of the ring onto the Righteous, which was amazing. Kept doing it multiple times, and probably the first time in that match, the crowd got into it. Dutch wound up hitting a massive dive over the top rope, squashed the boys, Vincent hit death from above, but Castle broke up the pinfall at the last second. Dalton manages to get the win, though, with a bang orang, and we have new six-man tag team champions. I'll give it three and a half links of booting out of five. Dalton and crew did a great job fighting from underneath in a really fun match. It felt like it was maybe a little shorter than what I expected, but then again, that's kind of the story of a lot of those a lot of the matches on the card outside the main event. So we get to the ROH Pure Championship match, Daniel Garcia versus Wheeler Yuta. And they actually showed they have judges for this match. First off, the fact that they had Ace Steel here, shout out to them for getting him for this. Ace Steel, Josh Woods, and John Walters were the judges for this contest. Of course, if the match did indeed go to a draw or double count out or whatever, that's where that was going. 
And they had some phenomenal technical wrestling as expected throughout this. One point, Garcia caught Yuta with a massive headbutt that stunned him for a good moment. And the fact they had Regal on commentary for this match as well as the opener really made me realize how good Regal is on commentary and more importantly, how underutilized he is compared to, I think, a lot of people in the AW locker room. I would love to see him be the third man on that booth consistently in Ring of Honor. If they do have TV tapings again through the Bleacher Report app, which has been a pile of you-know-what or whatever, however they do it, that would be great because I think Regal fits that brand so well, especially when it comes to the pure championship, him breaking down a lot of the holds. It's like a damn near, you know, he's teaching you lessons about wrestling. And if you are an inspiring wrestler, pay attention to what Regal says, especially when he mentions stuff about the pile driver. That was another really cool thing he mentioned later on the match. But Regal also mentioned that they had looked at one point Garcia as a potential recruit for the Blackpool Combat Club. Of course, he's part of the Jericho Appreciation Society. And it wound up working out, I think, better for Yuta because he was able to become a star instantaneously while Garcia, I think he might have been a little bit too bland as a babyface to make that work. Again, personal opinion. This was... Something I love. Again, I love technical wrestling. I know it's not necessarily everybody's favorite thing, but this was damn good stuff. Garcia at one point cheated while the ref was preoccupied, biting Yuta's ear, Mike Tyson style, started to pounce on him and really just was attacking his ear for a good minute. And then they talked about, you know, how that's affected what happens after somebody bites in the ear or out cauliflower ear, all that stuff, and explaining that. That was mind-blowing because you never hear that kind of stuff be talked about in a wrestling ring or on commentary. And that was just really cool to hear. And it further spoke to me saying, hey, I want to hear more of him and Regal, Ian Riccoboni and Caprice Coleman on commentary because they worked well together. At one point, you had some really cool spots here with like great submission transitions. At one point you had these two guys fighting from their knees and this isn't like a typical match in the pure rules. If you don't know, there are no closed fists in the match. So it was these two guys slapping the taste out of each other's mouth for a good while. Garcia went down in a heap, but he still gets up at the count of nine. Yuta hits a German suplex for two followed by the anvil elbows. They kind of start countering submissions at one point. Yuta locks in the walls of Jericho. There's a roll-up exchange followed up by a pile driver by Garcia for two and a half. Garcia went for the violence party 2K22, but you know Yuta trapped Garcia with a roll-up to retain the pure championship. Damn good match. And again, I think it speaks to you know Regal breaking down the little things in this match and making it feel more scientific in the ring. That made this match even bigger. Four links to Budan type match. Really good stuff. And also explaining what he's been teaching you to as part of the BCC. Felt like it ended abruptly though. Felt like it could have gone a little bit longer and maybe teased the fact that you could have had this match go to a draw. And that could have cost him the title with Josh Woods and their match they had a while back. That would have been nice, but again, is what it is. 
after the match, Yuta goes to here to Code of Honor, but Garcia then flips him off and also flips off the ROH logo that's on the Titantron or the Contron, I guess you could say. But yeah, shows that, and it's really good look. Now we get to Roosh versus Dragon Lee that I think is going to be a match that whenever we look back at the history books of this card and this show, it's going to be going down as, in my mind, a hidden gem. Because everybody was excited about Claudio, Jonathan Gresham, and FTR Briscoes too. Roosh Dragon Lee was a late announcement to the card, but my God, did this deliver and then some. These guys went full bore. At one point, you had a Tope Suicida from Dragon Lee that put Rouge through the announce table. That was insane. And it reminded me a lot of, I'm sure many people have seen this spot a billion times, but it reminded me a lot of the suicide dive from Benoit onto, I think it was Booker T, where he basically rammed himself headfirst right into the the front end of the announce table, that spot always looked nutty. I mean, hell, even Daniel Bryan's match against Chris Jericho in the first episode of NXT, there's a similar spot to that, but he turns it around and basically rams it right into the back, which, again, was a damn good spot. But it looked rough, and basically, you had Dragon Lee, he, his foot hit the rope, so it didn't necessarily look necessarily as smooth as it could have, but still a very good match. At one point, you know, Roosh was throw after a shotgun dropkick early on, throwing Dragon Lee into the barricades. Again, if you hadn't watched Ring of Honor, you wouldn't know that's one of his big signatures. But this was 100% a brawl for a good chunk of it. Dragon Lee, like Roosh threw Lee off the apron and looked rough looking and sounded pretty rough. Dragon Lee wound up hitting a inside out Hurricane Rana to reset the match. Both men beat the 20 count the last second. Roosh hits the bull's horns, but Lee kicks out, which was mind-blowing because I don't think I've ever seen anybody kick out of that. Double stop by Lee for one, and that was followed up by a massive sit-out powerbomb for two. Looked great. Dragon Lee hits the incinerator. That only gets a two-count. Roosh then outsmarted his own brother and won with a second bull's horns to improve to 10-0 between ROH and AEW. Give that match four and a half links of Buddha. It is going to go down as a hidden gem. A match that people aren't necessarily probably going to remember all that much compared to the first match and the last match in the card, and maybe even Yuta Garcia, but this one definitely deserves a lot of love too. And then we get to the ROH Women's Championship match, Serena Deeb versus Mercedes Martinez. Code of Honor is adhered to right out the gate, which I was kind of surprised about. Really solid contest here with Mercedes playing her role as the larger competitor and more importantly, being able to use the power game against this more diminutive Deep. And that played a huge role in how the match was paced. Deep at one point hit a big spear on the apron, looked rough, and again, the apron's the hardest part of the ring. And they had some really good spots in this match. One of them was a dragon sleeper, basically the the brass city sleeper that Martinez does, but did it while hanging on the ropes. It turned into a tree of woe. Big drop kick right in the bread basket. At one point, these two were just exchanging strikes. It looked like an MMA, like basically where they're kind of on the, they're doing the ground game, but they're trying to throw strikes at each other to get out of the hold. 
and also cause more damage, which looked good. There was a big running knee from Martinez, but she couldn't capitalize. Deeb bit Mar- Martinez's arm, which she tried to lock the brass city sleeper. Deeb gets the serenity lock, but Martinez fought back. She tried again after, you know, targeting the knee and just started doing multiple knee breakers. Mercedes hit Cheeky Nando's into a modified Dominator, which looked insane because it had her set up for a Razor's Edge, and then it turned into a Dominator. looked fantastic. was only for a two-count. Martinez did win the match, though, with the Brass City Sleeper. Three and a half links of Buna. Probably the worst match tonight, but it's still not a bad one. Crowd was kind of dead for this, but I still enjoyed the hard-hitting contest. The only knock I have on it is I had to stop and resume play a couple times because I would just be in and out of it because I wasn't necessarily like that huge on it. Especially when I was, I'd, because I'd watched it live, but I was having some issues watching at this point live. It was probably halfway through the show, the feed started cutting in and out for me. From what I heard, a lot of people were having that issue, especially during the main event, or no, excuse me, not the main event, but the pure title match. So I, I think one person missed the entire finish. But now we get to the ROH World Te- Television Championship with Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe. This was a really fun match. Lethal worked the shoulder for a good chunk of it. Again, that's something that I think ROH does really well, kind of capitalizing and having more of a story to tell inside the ring more than anything else. Lethal and his crew came out, decked in all white, Dutt explained earlier in a promo backstage that this was to fit the tr- tradition of how in India... They only wear all white to a funeral. And first off, this is the first time we've seen Joe in a good while. Looks a lot more like his, you know, TNA Nation of Violence Joe rather than, you know, Samoa Joe fresh out of WWE. And these two were hard hitting the whole time. Damn good match. You had a lot of really cool finishes. Being hit, false finishes especially. Joe kicking out of lethal injection. Never see that happen. But holy hell. It gets crazy. Lethal winds up hitting him with the TV title. He thinks he's won. Joe kicks out. And he winds up winning with a Kikina clutch. Again, this is a four Lincoln Boudin type match. I wish I could have given a little bit higher, but I felt like the match got a little bit too overbooked. Again, it makes sense. But it didn't necessarily feel like a really great ROH match. And it falls a little bit short of, of my mark, at least. Now we get to the main event. Two out of three falls for the Ring of Honor World Tag Team Championship. The Briscoes versus FTR. Fans are split dead even between the two teams. And this was a fantastic match from the jump. These two went at it. It was wild. See how quickly... Things got out of hand. It was more of a technical match to start off, but eventually the Briscoes were, they played right into their hand and they were doing a great job isolating Cash Wheeler for a good bit of it. The hot tags worked well. When Dax got his, he was just getting it done. Couldn't quite get the finish of the match because of the first fall. He had a fake punch into a DDT by Dax for two, which was great. And then the Briscoes took advantage after. Harwood hit the turnbuckle off the catapult. Damn near looked like he got knocked the hell out. Briscoes get the first fall with the Doomsday device after a brief timeout. 
Match re- restarts. Dax tries to roll up. The Briz goes for two. Go to the outside. Jay is chopping the crap out of Dax's chest to the point where he's literally busted open. His chest is bleeding. That was wild. Super back suplex by Dax. Great false hope spot with Jay grabbing Cash right before he gets the hot tag. Then a redneck boogie for two. When Cash finally gets the hot tag, crowd goes nuts for it. Wheeler hits a big brain buster for two and a half. Cash hits a gory special for two. And then Dax and Mark start brawling outside. And then it's a full Pier 6 brawl. Cash and Mark on the ringside area while Jay and Dax go into the crowd. Then we see a big cross body by Cash for two. But Mark hits him with the bell. But that doesn't finish the job. Cash is busted open. We get a Spicoli driver into the froggy bow, but Dax breaks it up at the last possible moment. FGR hits the big rig, though, and it looked a little sloppy, but damn, it was still impressive to see that happen. So FTR evens it up at one fall of peace, and the fans went nuts whenever the big rig hit. Fight forever chance, I wholeheartedly agree. Mark Briscoe and Cash Wheeler are gooshing at this point. These two were going off hard. Blockbuster off the apron, which looked cool as hell. Attempted Jay Driller by Dax. But Dax fights out of it, excuse me, and lands a pile driver zone for two. Doomsday device attempt, but Cash stops Mark from finishing the double team maneuver. Ref bump and hit and then Jay hits his Jay Driller. Ref is out cold. Another doomsday attempt, but they get out of it. A big rig out of nowhere. They get the ref in, but he gets in a little bit too late. Kick out. Doomsday device connects. Cash breaks up the fall. Match has been insane at this point. You're going 40 minutes. And this pretty much became a full-blown brawl between Jay Briscoe and Dax. Double submission spot looked very familiar to DIY Revival, but a little bit different because Dax wound up being able to get to the ropes. Super back suplex by Cash through the Spanish announce table. Jay Driller for 2.999. Then he went for another one. Jay Driller was countered. Dax put his ass on the top rope. And when he hit this, I tell you, I damn near lost my mind. Hitting a second rope, a Brett's rope pile driver. I was like, what the hell just happened? FTR retains and I'm, I sat on this for a while. I had an idea of what I wanted to say here on this podcast, but I decided to change my mind and change my rating before I hit record. It broke the scale originally, but I say, you know what? After some time, I'm going to go ahead and say it stay, the, the scale isn't broken. It's going to be a five link of Buddha match. And I honestly think this is your freaking match of the year. I would love to see a match that is better than FTR Briscoe's two. And that's saying something. FTR Briscoe's one could have been match of the year, but I think this one exceeded it. Cash grabs the mic. The Briscoe's coming to the ring. We get to see them get the standing ovation they deserve. Show ends. Looks like we could have a champion's challenge match with Claudio and Wheeler taking on FTR, that would be fantastic stuff, to say the very least, if we get that. But this was one of the best shows of the year. And it's just kind of carried by your beginning and middle. You had a really good opener that felt a little bit short, but again, you know some of the backstage stuff 
you can kind of understand it a little bit more. Pure championship match and Roosh Dragon Lee, that both those matches absolutely slapped. And then you get the main event being one of the best matches of the year, if not the match of the year, in my humble opinion. But I want to get to Dynamite as well before we wrap up the podcast. It's not often I talk about like wrestling that happened on television as much anymore. It was definitely more of a focal point of the podcast when we started it. But I've decided to just go ahead and kind of table some of that. But I think this week's was more of a reason why I want to kind of get into it. I won't necessarily break it down like a science and do like a full-blown report like I do for pay-per-views because that's just not how I operate. That said, I am going to talk about a few things that they did on the show that maybe weren't necessarily my cup of tea. And first of all, I'll just say this. Tony Khan's got to let stuff breathe because I feel like they do a little bit too much. Now, don't get me wrong. It's always good to have a lot. And again, this is coming from a guy that does radio, a radio show every Saturday under the dome with CD, if you haven't heard it. Saturdays from 9 to 11 a.m. on the game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. But it's good to have a lot of stuff because in case something does happen, you can fill that void. But it feels like AEW does a little bit too much. That said, what they do, it's pretty doggone good. And this week's show was fantastic. Yes, you had Darby Allen lose to Brody King, but Brody King needed to win that. Needed to just absolutely beat the piss out of him. Because if he doesn't, how can you take him seriously as a monster heel? Now, what I'm really interested in is the post-match stuff with Miro. Is he part of the House of Black with the double tinted glasses or whatever it was? The sunglasses, that was really a, a great look, and potentially we could have Miro turn heel and join the House of Black. Who knows? That'd be kind of cool. Then we get to, you know, Luchasaurus. And I, I, I at first I was kind of thrown off by this, but then I'm like, okay, it makes sense. Because you had a really good squash with Luchasaurus and Christian Cage taking on the Varsity Blondes. But after the match, Jungle Boy finally returns after weeks. And he walked to the ring with the chair. And Luchasaurus was just standing there. He's like, I'm not letting you get towards Christian Cage at first. And then he turns around when he kind of realizes, hey, this is my best friend. This is Jungle Boy, my guy. Now, I know people were probably like, oh, man, now we don't get to see badass Luchasaurus anymore. I think there's a chance we could see it again. Because who's to say that this wasn't a ruse by Christian Cage the entire time to where Luchasaurus turns on Jungle Boy again and we see that see that feud build up to where Luchasaurus Jungle Boy has to eat Luchasaurus to get to Christian Cage. I think that's the direction they would love to go for that. Maybe build that as part of your road to all out. Now it's all about if Jungle Boy is 100% healthy. It seems like he is since he is back on the road. The other thing I want to get to is, and this goes back to what I was saying. You had a barbed wire everywhere match as the main event 
a barbed wire match. And how much time would you have given that in any other era? I probably would have given it 20 minutes. This match got 13 minutes. And one of those was, and you had a picture-in-picture setup for that. 13 minutes. That's what we got. It feels when they do these big matches, it's too rushed. Again, I could be completely off base here. It just feels like they're running through the match and it's speed running through it. And the main event, first of all, Jericho should not have won that freaking match. There was no reason. Jericho gains nothing, nothing from winning a match against Eddie Kingston on Dynamite. This is, again, it speaks to how I think Feud should go. Blood and Guts paid off the feud at least somewhat between the JAS, the Blackpool Combat Club, Proud and Powerful, and Eddie Kingston to a certain degree. But it did not pay off the Eddie Kingston match, the Eddie Kingston-Jericho feud. Now, why the hell do we get... How do you elevate yourself and go up from a barbed wire everywhere match. Now, it's a lot like Thunder Rosa versus Britt Baker DMD. You had a lights out match and that ended their feud for a while. When they ran it back, it was for a championship. This could have been a moment to get Eddie Kingston over and more importantly, give the heel his comeuppance. But no. You decided to make it an overbooked piece of crap. And I'll never understand how that how it happens where Tony Khan, who's supposedly the booker of the year for two straight years, can have a moment where he completely bleeps up. Something like this. I mean, it's simple. All you have to do is let the guy that's the baby face win the match. Win the match. But no, you have to have Ty Conti come out, take the key from Ruby Soho, then Anna J comes out, sides with Conti, and then Ty Conti can't open a freaking lock to save her life. You basically had two of the guys, two of the smaller guys, both be able to just wiggle their way out of there. Then Sammy Guevara comes out. He was supposed to be in the shark cage the entire time, but no. He helps out Sammy, Sammy Guevara helps out Jericho to win the match. With the Judas effect. But again, how the hell do you kind of go from here? Because you, now you can't just have a normal match. You just had a match that should be a blow off to a feud. A barbed wire match should be a blow-off. A lot like a lights-out match, a hell-in-a-cell match, a TLC match, whatever. If you have something that has high stakes and high risks, spoilers, that should be the match that ends a feud. And a heel ending a feud isn't the way to go about it, especially when you want to build up Eddie Kingston as a guy of the future. Or the... Near future, because, you know, Eddie Kingston has been doing this for 20 years. 
but it was very confusing why they did that because Jericho had nothing really to gain. Now you could run back Moxley versus Jericho at all out, which I wouldn't mind, but I feel like I'd much rather see Eddie Kingston continue to be built up. Maybe down the road, he does face Moxley in a match, which would be great because we saw it before. Why not see it again? Or maybe Eddie Kingston, CM Punk too, or something. But it feels like now Eddie Kingston's going to be, the heat got taken off him. The, 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 the rub that he was getting from that star-making moment at Revolution, that shine's gone. And I think it's just because of that moment. Now, can he get back into the top of the card sooner rather than later? I'm sure he can because he's one of the best promo guys they have. But it was a little bit of a gut punch to see Eddie Kingston lose that match the way that he did. But that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Be back with you next week. And boy, oh boy, have we got a lot to talk about next week as well. SummerSlam, Flair's last match, UFC 277, a stacked weekend if there ever was one. So we'll get to that and so much more this time next week. Until then, enjoy the wrestling. Don't be a jerk about stuff. And hey, just go ahead and subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review while you're at it. And if we see a new one pop up on the Cage Strong Style podcast on iTunes or Spotify, we'll go ahead and mention you on the podcast. In fact, I'm pulling it up right now. Let's see if we got some new ones. We've gotten some ratings, but nothing new in a while. So make sure if you haven't already, leave us a review and write one too while you're at it. Mm-hmm.